Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center. 2019 and 2020 mark the 100th anniversary since the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which articulated that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The 19th Amendment was the result of centuries of activism and contributions from many social movements to ensure through the highest law of the land a right through which all other rights could be secured. But as suffragist leader Frances Harper observed in 1893, I do not think the mere extension of the ballot a panacea for all the ills of our national life. What we need today is not simply more voters, but better voters. Indeed, despite the passage of the 19th Amendment, women of color did not gain their right to vote until 1965, and some suffragist participation also went hand in hand with problematic racism. Although there have been many advancements since the passage of the 19th Amendment, there's much to be done to improve the status of women, including, among other things, ending sex-based discrimination, improving maternal mortality rates, especially for black women, ensuring equal pay for equal work, increasing protections for the LGBTQ community, and addressing challenges faced by veterans and those who live in poverty. Kirsten Kim, a senior computer science major at James Madison University, spent her summer as a democracy fellow at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement, researching the history of women's rights in what we now know as the United States. And she also did a lot of research around the 19th Amendment. Using her knowledge and technical expertise, she created a comprehensive timeline that begins in 1619 and goes through present day. The timeline includes entries related to progress and challenges to the status of women, with photos and links to primary source documents. Kirsten is with us here today to talk about the timeline. Welcome, Kirsten. Hi. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Also with us today is Bree Moore. She's an engagement fellow this year with the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Bree graduated this last May with a major in public policy and administration and a minor in women, gender, and sexuality studies. Thanks for joining us today, Bree. Thanks for having me. So Kirsten, why don't you tell us, why were you interested in taking on this project? So I've heard a lot lately about how we don't need, no, we don't need to keep working towards women's rights. We have equal rights and we kind of just need to stop complaining. And while we might have made some advancements, um, there's still a ways to go. And I think we've lost touch with our roots, basically. So we forgot about the women who fought so hard to get us here. We need to reconnect with that, remember what they've done, and not let their efforts go to waste. So I was really excited about this project because I got to dive deep into all of it, learn so much, and then now I have like a reinvigorated spirit for revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about the timeline and how you went about researching the events, um, gathering primary source documents, and building the timeline? Oh, so there's like, there's a wealth of information out there. I mean, the internet, we have endless information that I could have dug through. Um, basically, I just started with the things that I knew, and then from there, it would lead to another document and another source. So I think the hardest part about it was like figuring out what was pertinent and when to stop researching, because I would find so much information. But I mean, the timeline is huge, and if I had kept going, it could have been twice the size that it is now. Um, thankfully, all of the women's rights organizations like throughout history, they were super well documented. So reading their like actual organization documents and constitutions and the communications between them, 
would lead me to other places. So it was just like connection after connection. I would find something, add it to the list, and then go back and do more research. So the timeline begins in 1619, and it goes through present day. What were some of the most surprising things you learned? Oh, so I learned so much, more than I was expecting to. Um, I think the biggest thing that I saw was there was a huge counter movement to suffrage. Like, I didn't, I obviously knew that people were um, against it and hesitant to support it, but there was a massive effort on the part of, like, women who didn't think it was necessary. They just said, we don't want to worry about it. It doesn't need to be on the table. Um, And it surprised me how long that lasted and the reasons for it. A lot of it was um, Southern white supremacy. They thought with women voting that they would lose power. And white women in the South agreed with this and were fine with not having voting rights. Um, It was just very, very surprising how it wasn't just, like, legislative barriers, but, like, huge social pushback against it for years. I mean, the entirety of the movement, there were people working against it. And it was shocking. I probably should have known that ahead of time, but just the reading I did and some of the arguments, too. So Brie also helped us with some editing of the timeline. Brie, what did you find most surprising or what what events did you relearn from as you went through the timeline? Um, so when I did most of my studying, we talked about like the main events and like the big things that contributed to the movements. But when I was sitting here looking at the timeline, I saw the small victories of when states were passing legislation to make it happen in their states, even though the federal government wasn't on board. And that kind of motivated me in a way because you see how much that local and state force can drive the mission that the federal government isn't attaching to. So um, just like seeing it and just like seeing it keep coming up, you're like, okay, Wyoming, go ahead. (laughs) Um, And so like that really made me happy because although there were people fighting in DC and people fighting in the South just to get, to gain those rights, there were states already doing and contributing to the movement. Yeah, that really struck me, too, just thinking about the Constitution, Um, because voting was not considered part of a core right of citizenship as the Constitution um, was being framed and passed and ratified by the states. And, you know, from looking at this timeline, it seemed that there was actually women voting in some states. But then after the Constitution, you actually see a rollback of voting rights Mm -hmm. among some of the states. And that's highlighted in the timeline. And that really struck me um, that you had previously had some progress around um, women's suffrage that are then rolled back. And so kind of what, Kirsten, what you referred to earlier, that you see progress and then you see a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. While you were doing your research, um, how did your your emotions about this topic feed in? Like, were you like, oh man, I'm mad? Or were you like, man, this is like really, really sad? Or what what, what did you feel when you were going through it? Um, All of the above. It's a mix of sadness and then, like, hope because so much progress has been made. And I feel sad for the women at the time and sad for those prior to it and those right now who don't have access to these same privileges. Um, But overall, I think it ended positively. Although there were a lot of things that would upset people, especially me, um, (laughs) there were a lot of things that would upset me, but in the end, 
when it's all together, it just is kind of like magical. You look at it and you're like, wow, like we have come so far and I'm so grateful to the women who came before me and proud of them for what they did against all odds. So overall, I mean, at, in the moment, it was very difficult, but in hindsight, I'm just very pleased with it. And I'm proud to be a woman. <laughs> the arc of citizenship is long, but it bends <laughs> towards justice. <laughs> One thing that specifically got under my skin is the relationship between women's rights organizations and black women's rights organizations, like <laughs> how there was a, like a, they were segregated and it mm -hmm. really bothered me because that divide between suffrage and abolition, like it was unnecessary and there was, it was just personal biases pretty much that got in the way of them coming together and I believe that I wholeheartedly believe it would have been a stronger force if if key leaders hadn't let their own idea of how things should go get in the way um, it really it bothered me to that we speak about women's rights and women's suffrage and the women's movement but we are completely completely excluding like entire groups of women who were vital parts of the movement, and the we don't credit bone, them with the anything. backbone of the movement. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And suffrage wouldn't—I mean, the suffrage movement wouldn't have happened without the abolition movement. They originated from the same thing, and then white women took off and ran with it, and decided that their rights were more important than anyone else's. And that really—it bothers me, especially because I had never learned that in school, <laughs> and I feel like that's an important thing to note. I feel like that was my entire college career of just like getting into classes, learning subjects that you're like really passionate about and being like, how did I miss this earlier in life? Um, how am I relearning this subject even though I already have some information on it? So Seneca Falls was really interesting because the idea of, of because the idea of including suffrage at the Seneca Falls convention was really radical. Um, the idea what around Seneca Falls was really a broad agenda of topics that included property rights and economic rights. Um, and, and suffrage at that time was seen as radical because it was, it would be a way of asserting that women would be thought of as their own individuals <laughs> and having their own interests who would have thought? and not as people who relied on everything, you know, relied for everything on their husbands, fathers, or masters. Um, and so that really struck me too. Um, and I think again, you know, the, the suffrage and abolition as, you both have noted, kind of went hand in hand, right? And they were seen initially as these mo these social movements that were intertwined and relied one and relied on one another. Um, but then it sort of breaks apart when the Fourteenth Amendment comes, and for for some women and especially white women, it became you know we we they did not they ended up opposing um, they ended up opposing the Fourteenth Amendment because it had included. Um, the sex classification. And so they thought of it as more important. They didn't even silently, like, accept it and then move on and continue fighting for women's suffrage. They actively opposed it. That's what bothers me. Like, yeah. because you didn't get your way, you have to, like, actively work against another group trying to achieve theirs. It just... the it is so complex, like the intertwining of racism and sexism and classism and all of these movements yes. that it's really hard to differentiate between them. And it also is disheartening and saddening to see that they kind of let them 
destroy themselves. I honestly think that it delayed women's suffrage for years, parting ways with abolition and like just black people in general. Like they should have taken a more definitive stand, worked with the triply doubly <laughs> oppressed groups. <laughs> and then I think that with that combined effort, I mean, we know that the most oppressed are key in every single social change in every movement. And instead of taking their side, they decided to side with their oppressors as well. Like, it just... I mean, <laughs> we we do say that unification is the only way for us to reach a goal, yet we bring in people with so many different views and so many different thoughts on subjects that we don't even give ourselves the chance to unify. And because of that, we have, we have remained in... I don't want to say dark ages, but like dark ages, um, to the extent that we could have been farther than we are, but because we have let the things that divide us come between us, we don't allow ourselves to truly grow. Collective action is really the only way that <laughs> these things work. And then people just missed that for years and years and years and to, to currently right now. <laughs> Um, from your research, did you find any moments that seem to be sort of key inflection points, either for progress or for rolling back progress? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Seneca Falls, about the 14th Amendment. Were there other periods? I think the turning point in the suffrage movement was w the suffrage movement was when the labor movement and the women's <laughs> rights movement came hand in hand. Like when Harriet Stanton Blatch like founded the WPU. She bridged the gap between wealthy white women and working class white women. Um, <laughs> they kind of became unstoppable. Like from then it was inevitable because they had the numbers and they had um, new tactics. They introduced a lot more um, radical efforts and those proved to be the most successful. I mean, I believe, and I think it's proven through history that Radical change is the only thing that actually does change things. Like, you can't ask nicely. You have to demand it and press it until they can't ignore you anymore. Um, I think the combination of the labor movement and the women's rights movement had the effect that I think the suffrage movement and the abolition movement together would have had. Because working together, like I just said, collective action truly is the only way to achieve your goals. And they finally figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of, you mentioned some new tactics were introduced. What were some of those tactics? So previously they were mostly like petitioning um, Congress and then state legislatures, which, which did work. I mean, grassroots efforts are important. But the radical tactics that they used were like mass demonstrations, protesting, picketing, when they would purposely get arrested. That's a very effective tactic, purposely getting arrested, making the news, and then while imprisoned, like, refusing to eat. They were constantly making statements. They would not give up, and it was different than anything the traditional methods had ever achieved. Like, they were on the forefront of everything, especially during times when before they would say, oh, we can't protest on this date. It's the inauguration. Well, they're like, well, that's perfect. Because it's an important day, there's going to be lots of news outlets. We want to be there. And they are not letting anyone ignore them. And that just, when I was reading that and I learned that for the first time, I was actually like cheering in my seat. I was really excited about it. Because they finally changed. And it was like, there was a lot of internal conflict over it too, within um, leadership, the more old-fashioned people, the older women who had pretty much started the movement. And then 
the younger generation who were like, well, we're sick of just asking. We're going to force them. And it worked. <laughs> so I have a question for that. Um, as we tend to be in the younger generation of our current movement, um, and I, I see similarities in it, but what type of similarities do you see from dating back to 1600s, 1700s versus now? And how are we still radical? What are we doing? Oh, I have lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> um, so when I first, when we first, Kara and I, discussed the timeline in this project as a whole, I was really excited about um, introducing collective action to or what are we, third wave or fourth wave feminism? <laughs> Modern feminism. They think feminism, or their feminism, is personal choice. Mm -hmm. And individuality is, like, really big in American society. Like, we don't think as a collective unit. And that really, really hurts any kind of activism. Because you can't make, like, structural change on an individual level. You have to work as a unit. That's what I think modern day... Young women are, we're all very privileged in that we were never not allowed to vote. We have always been allowed to drive. We don't have to ask for our father's permission to buy property. And when you get married, you are not absorbed into your husband's being, which is great. But it also has, I think, I think it's made us a little bit soft, honestly. Like we Ooh, aren't, softies. We aren't I love asking it. for enough and we're not willing to do the radical things. Are we complacent? I would say we're complacent because a lot of people are satisfied with what they have. They don't remember w how things used to be because we weren't there for it. And they haven't constructed a massive timeline to learn about it. <laughs> You're right. So we've forgotten where we came from, basically. And we thank the women who have come before us for making this way, and then we're just leaving it at that. But there's so much more room to grow what I love is that you're questioning our comfort and our privilege, right? And when we are comfortable and have many privileges, we, there's no incentives to change the structure or to question the status quo, right? That really comes from those who are not benefiting from the status quo. Um, and I think one of the major things that also inhibits collective action around this is trying to put ourselves um, in the place of others and mm -hmm. empathize with those who don't have the same experiences or privileges. And I wonder to what extent we can and should be doing more of that for those of us who have privilege, who are comfortable. How, how do we relay to other young women, um, you know, who, who, you know, aren't necessarily um, engaged on these issues or understand what has come before? listen to each other. I think that's the biggest thing is when someone tells you about their experience and you try to explain it away in your head because it is messed up and you don't want to think that that's a world that we could live in, um, it's doing everyone a disservice. You have to hear someone's story, believe them, listen to them, and feel not like it's happening to you, but not tolerate it happening to anyone. Um, I think social media is huge in this because we get a look into other people's lives across the world that you don't relate to really at all. You've had entirely different experiences and upbringings, but you have the opportunity to hear their story and care about it as if it's happening to you. And the complacency, I think that comes from a, a it is a, coming from a place of privilege. 
And the only thing to combat that is to care a little bit more. You have to stop thinking about it's venom. Feminism is not about yourself. It's about the community and knowing that if you want something for yourself, you should want it for all of your neighbors, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation. Uh, I'm forgetting so many other things. Pretty much every Able, aspect. Ableness. Yeah, able-bodiedness, everything that you can possibly think of. You want the standards that you would want for yourself and for your daughters for everyone else. It just so I'm just wondering, did like did anybody else's parents tell you to treat people the way that you wanted to be treated? Because I feel like that emphasis on care is if I'm going to care about you, I would want you to care about me. Um, and maybe we don't have that same experience and our days, our 24 hours don't look the exact same, but we're living in the same place. We have the same rules and structures that confide us in. We have the ability to change it if we cared a little bit. And also, I mean, they do, they teach that in every kindergarten class. Right? You think that people will remember it. Who would have thought? <laughs> it's that, but I, oh, I just, I forgot what I was going to say, so. <laughs> I, got all, I got all riled up. <laughs> Kirsten, I wonder if you might read us one of your favorite quotes or excerpts. So I came across this quote when I was um, just doing general research, and it's from Billie Jean King. Well, who's Billie Jean King, for oh, those who might is. not be familiar? So Billie Jean King was the best tennis player of her day. And Bobby Riggs challenged her to a tennis match multiple times, and she had denied him previously. Um, he was extremely sexist. <laughs> he, like, taunted her a bunch before the match. It was really gross. Um, <laughs> so she had rejected challenges from him before, um, and then she finally accepted his challenge to basically beat him and prove to herself him and the world that she could do it because she was the best of her day. The quote that I found from her when I was doing research that I just really, really loved was she said, I thought it would set us back 50 years if I didn't win that match. It would ruin the women's tennis tour and affect all women's self-esteem. To beat a 55-year-old guy was no thrill for me. The thrill was exposing a lot of new people to tennis. And I read that and I was just so filled with like power and excitement because I'm imagining being one of the 90 million viewers of this match and being a little girl watching it and just mm -hmm. it was inspiring decades after it happened so she won needless to say <laughs> and Bobby later said that he let her win which we all know is not true uh, she won and that the reason the quote meant so much to me is because the women's rights movement is not, or wasn't exclusive to policy and legislation. It wasn't exclusive to voting rights. You couldn't have equality without Title IX and without divorce laws and without everything else that comes with being a woman or a citizen of, of America. It is all intertwined in the fact that she had so much pressure riding on her to prove herself like on behalf of all women. I feel like it's a little bit relatable for anyone if you've ever gone into a workplace. I mean, I'm a computer science major. I am surrounded by men all the time. I'm literally the only woman in my class for the fourth time in my college career. And it is, it's intimidating just to exist in these spaces and for her to go in there and show him up completely on or international television, actually, just, it, it means a lot to me now. And I just think that it's representative of all aspects of the women's rights movement. Because she wasn't fighting for suffrage. She was just fighting to 
to earn respect that she should have been due in the first place. And now we have Serena Williams. Yes! <laughs> who could be any man. <laughs> Bree, what was your favorite quote or excerpt from the timeline? Or one of them? Well, There's so many to choose from. Um, so I actually picked a quote from Audre Lorde, who is one of my, or one of my favorite uh, womanist, activist, poets, like... She, wow. Wearer of many hats. Wow. <laughs> Love me some Audre Lorde. Um, but uh, her, one of her most famous lines is, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbian, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to the to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Wow. Yes. Wow. Edit in some applause right there. <laughs> I don't know if my podcast editing skills are that good yet, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, all right. I, can I choose one? Absolutely. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to just read a quick quote from Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech. She delivered this speech at the 1851 Women's, Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. Um, and so, so Sojourner Truth, for those who don't know, was um, an abolitionist and a suffragette. Um, so she says in the Ain't I a Woman speech, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. Ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me and ain't I a woman. Kirsten, Bree, thanks for joining me today on Democracy Matters. Thank you, it was a pleasure yes. talking to you women. Thank you so much for having Kirsten, us. Kirsten, this is truly a remarkable project. If you're listening, please check out the project at jmu.edu slash civic, and you can find it under the 19th Amendment tab. Uh, if you have suggestions yes. for additional entries, please email Kirsten, and her contact info is on the website. Yeah, please email me. I love getting them. I've gotten a couple so far, and I already have a list going. So, Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. <laughs>